0: If you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing to work our way through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the book of Philippians, and we continue this morning our work through, our way through, chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3, but we'll be focusing primarily on verses 7 through 11 as we continue to consider this specific section of this letter, I've I mentioned this before in the not so distant past, and for many of you, it doesn't come as a surprise that I'm I'm a fan of numbers. I enjoy math. Some people loathe it, and although I don't understand it, okay, I I know that that's true. And a number of years ago, our previous financial secretary, Fred Hill, retired. And at that time, we decided the the best course of action was to distribute Fred's responsibilities among different staff members. And so different individuals picked up different responsibilities. And it kind of fell to me to lead the charge on that and provide some overall oversight and organization. Well, As a consequence, I had to become familiar with a realm of mathematical activity that I was not used to, and that is the world of accounting. Now, when I was an engineering student, I had a professor... I think it was the, the very first engineering class I ever took at the University of Tennessee, and the professor said, "He said, if you're interested in math, if you're pursuing engineering because you enjoy math, stop. Go be an accountant. Be an engineer if you like to solve problems." And there's a lot of there's a lot of truth in that. But as I began to enter this world of accounting, it didn't consume a whole lot of of attention, but sufficient and I needed to become better familiar with accounting math. And here was what I needed to learn. When you're doing accounting, sometimes debits are positive, sometimes they're negative. Sometimes credits are positive. Sometimes they're negative, and it all depends on where they fall on the balance sheet, okay? And if your eyes have glazed over, come back to me just to know this. When you're working there with a balance sheet and you're trying to keep the book straight, there are operations that are positive on one side and negative on the other, and the reverse is true, and the goal is to keep the balance sheet Balance to make sure you know where the money is and where it's come from and where it's going and keeping track of those pluses and minuses was part of the big learning curve for me personally. Paul, in this section of Philippians, is concerned with what I'm calling here gospel accounting. That is in light of the Gospel, what are the true positives and what are the negatives that should inform our outlook on our own lives? Listen to what Paul writes and see if you can hear this accounting language, this gains and losses, positives and negatives. Listen for that language as we read Philippians 3 1 through 11. Finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray one more time, shall we? Heavenly Father, as we come to You, Father, we pause and give thanks for the godly influences that you have placed in our lives. Father, I thank you for the gift of a godly father and for his example. I thank you, Father, for all of the other men that you have placed in my life who have set before me a vision for godliness and for following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank You for those men in this congregation who are fathers and striving to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I thank You, Father, for those who exercise Father-like concern and care for the children in their lives. Father, thank You. Thank You that though Some of us have known the gift of godly fathers. There are others who have not known that gift. But Father, there is gratitude in the fact that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know You as the only perfect Heavenly Father. And so Father, as we work our way through these verses, we pray, Father, that as our Heavenly Father, that You would instruct us that where we need to be disciplined, to be chastised, we pray, Father, that You would be pleased by Your Spirit to use the Word to exercise formative and corrective discipline in our lives even during this time. And we pray, Father, that in all that we say and do, the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified and that we would look to him as indeed our sure and steady anchor. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we consider what Paul writes here in verses 7 through 11, his example challenges us. His example challenges us as we examine and evaluate our lives, as we examine and evaluate our perspective on our lives. How does our accounting compare to Paul's gospel accounting as it shows up here in these verses? And to this end, there are two broad observations that we need to make from this passage. First are Paul's losses. What does he see as his losses? And then secondly, Paul's gain. His losses and his gain. First, let's observe Paul's losses. Notice that Paul says he counts his losses. Verses 7 and 8 again, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. As Paul writes about these losses that he, in some sense, counts or tallies up, what are these losses that he counts? What does he say at the beginning of verse 7? Whatever gain I had. Now, when he speaks here of the gain that he had, he's referring back to what he has just written about his personal religious resume. He goes, he has gone into some detail, as we saw last week, to note that he has reason for boasting in the flesh. That is, reason if his religious resume were put aside someone else's religious resume. He would have more reason to rejoice in himself, to use our language from last week. But here he says, whatever might be perceived as such gain, whatever others might view as to my religious advantage, I count it as loss. I don't view it as gain. To me, it is a loss. It is nothing. He goes on in verse 8 to not just refer to his religious resume, but he expands his language. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Gordon Fee in his commentary on Philippians writes this about this everything that paul counts as lost everything that others might consider to have value in the present age everything that others might consider to have value in the present age for example religious advantages status material benefits honor comforts these are the things that paul is evaluating that he is counting But what does he mean by counting them as loss? When he says that he counts them, he's using the same word that he has used previously. Back in Philippians 2, verse 3, "...in humility, count others more significant than yourselves." Same word, count down in verse 6 of the same chapter, when he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. What does Paul mean here when he says count? He's, he's talking about regarding, evaluating how he views these things that others would view as to his advantage He has a different perspective. He has a different consideration on them. He's not repudiating or renouncing his history. He's not even saying, I I wish I hadn't been born a Jew. I wish my parents hadn't circumcised. He's not going there. If you look elsewhere in Paul's writings, he writes that, there, the Jews are in a privileged position. This is implied when Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that the Gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And then at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, Romans 9, Romans 11, Paul acknowledges a privileged position. Ephesians 2. He identifies the Jews as those who were the inheritors of the covenants in contrast to the Gentiles who were the outsiders. So, the point here is that he is not repudiating that background, but rather, what he is saying is, it does not give me standing before God. It counts as nothing when I evaluate my life, and more than when I evaluate my life, when the Father, when God the Father looks at me and evaluates me, these things are not credited as positives to my account. I consider them not worth any value with respect to my standing before God. Moreover, they are no basis for boasting. They are no basis for me to assert myself as inherently better according to God's evaluation and standing before God next to anyone else. I count these things as nothing. As loss. As if they're not even there. Because they don't show up on my account. When you're reconciling your checking account, you look for transactions. You want to make sure especially those deposits are there. Paul says his resume does not show up as a deposit on his account. It is nothing to him before God. But when? When were these losses counted? Do you hear the shift in Paul's language? Notice what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. This, the verb form in the original is a perfect verb meaning it's a past action. It's something that happened in the past and has ongoing implications into the present and beyond. When did Paul count his resume as a loss? Beginning on that road to Damascus when the Lord revealed Himself in blinding glory to the zealot who was on his way to persecute the church. And when Paul became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the time of his conversion, the resume went away in Paul's mind. He saw that he had no standing before God. But, do you notice that as Paul writes, it's not just back then that he counted these things as nothing to his account. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Then in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. There was an accounting in the past, but there is also an accounting that Paul is doing now. Which points to the fact that for Paul, this was an ongoing evaluation. Not just as he considered his life back then and he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but as he continued to walk with Christ, as he continued to examine himself and consider himself, he viewed all of these things as providing no ongoing credit to his account. Before God. It was past and it was present. It was, this evaluation was an ongoing part of his life. But notice, as Paul writes about his losses, he doesn't just say that there is this mental evaluation that happens. There is. There's A mental assessment, reviewing of life, these things count as nothing. But his losses are not just in this observance. Because notice what he writes in the middle of verse 8. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I have suffered the loss of all things. here. Paul is referring to not just his evaluation, but real hardships that he faced that brought about tangible loss in his life as he followed Christ, as he obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, perhaps, most remember. Remarkably, if you will, in the, the most memorable fashion, over in chapter eleven of Second Corinthians about these hardships. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. What did Paul suffer loss? He suffered the loss of comfort. Once I was stoned, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. What did Paul suffer? He suffered a lack of physical safety because of his obedience to Christ. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What did Paul suffer? He suffered a lack of sleep from time to time. What did he suffer? He suffered from time to time a full belly. What did he suffer from time to time? He, he suffered from a lack of warmth. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What does he suffer as he follows Christ? Even a sense of peace of mind, absent from any concern for anyone else, because he has concern for what is going on with the churches. Not in a sinful way, but in a healthy fatherly way as he is concerned for those who are suffering like the Philippians, like he is, as they walk faithful to Christ. As Paul writes about his losses, he writes not just about those things that were Others might view as credited to his account to give him standing before God, but he also looks at his life and he says, life has not been easy. I have suffered physical losses in this life. I have suffered sleepless nights, and so on and so forth, because of obedience, because of following Christ. As one commentator puts it, Paul's years of following Christ brought an increase of suffering. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul's consecrated experience was not completely voluntary. Sometimes, he was forced to give up things for Christ. Sometimes, they were stripped of Him by others. But even as he looks at those things that he counts as loss, and those things that he suffered as loss. What is his final evaluation of them? What does he say in verse 8? For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. There's another counting. Now, he is counting, he is evaluating this full scope of things. And he is saying they are trash. That's the word. This word is also used to refer to manure, frankly, in places. Maybe what Paul is doing is he's referring to the trash that would be put out In his day and age, for those wandering dogs that we referred to last week, remember I referred to, I talked about Barney the Schnoodle and how the dogs in Paul's day were not Schnoodles, they were not Labradors, they were not Jack Russell Terriers, they were wild, vicious dogs, and he uses that terminology back on these Judaizers, and it's almost as if he's, he's Drawing an illustration out for them. Just as the trash that is out there is for those roaming dogs that go around, so also, my resume and others like it, that these who would have you adopt similar Jewish practices, those things that they want to boast in, to me, it's trash. And they can have their feast if they want it. But to me, and ultimately to God, it counts as nothing as far as standing before Him. This past week, as our convention representatives, messengers from our convention of churches met in Anaheim, California, one of the highlights of that gathering, and it's a highlight every year, was the setting aside of international missionaries to go overseas this year. And there are multiple commissioning services that happen over the course of the year, but it's always also a part of the convention gathering. And at this service this week, there were 52 men and women who had been set aside and are going overseas to share the Gospel. And as I watched bits and pieces of the convention over Tuesday and Wednesday, I watched part of the commissioning service. And what's it, what was striking about that is the first group of missionaries, and I don't know the number, but the first group, they would put their name up on the board and the couple or the individual would come and they'd be standing before a mic and you'd see their faces and they'd share a brief bit about their their story, and then would move on to the next couple. Come up to the mic, you could see them, where they were going, and so forth. But then the, the tone of the commissioning shifted, and no longer were the missionaries there in front of a microphone so that you could see their faces, but now they were behind a screen. And all you could see was an outline because of where they are going to take the Gospel. And because of security concerns, Their faces could not be shown. I remember reading a number of years ago uh, a comment from one individual observing a pastor observing a commissioning service like this, and he wrote, watching families grieve over the reality of their adult children and grandkids soon going overseas, to take the Gospel to those who have never heard truly Gospel goodbyes. The families who are sending off are underrated heroes of the Great Commission. That kind of separation that families experience as a family member compelled by the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ goes overseas Proclaim the hope of Christ to those who have never heard. That is genuine loss. The loss of birthday celebrations. The loss of family gatherings. The loss of celebrating Thanksgiving and Christmas face to face. Those are real sacrifices and real losses for the sake of The Gospel. Sometimes, the missionary calling leads to a sacrifice of life. Here I read from an article by author and pastor Tim Chester. On Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956, Jim Elliot and four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador. Elliot 's story is familiar to many of you. It was a dangerous landing, and they could not all land at once for years they'd been dreaming of and planning for this moment. Their hearts were set on reaching the Alca Indians with the good news of Jesus. The Alcas were a notoriously dangerous tribe. no one "...had reached them before. Some had exchanged gifts, but always the Alcas had attacked them. For three months, the missionaries had been regularly flying over the area, dropping gifts and shouting greetings. When they landed, they built a hut and waited for the Alcas to come and find them. They knew the dangers. Their wives had discussed the possibility of becoming widows." Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, says they went simply because they knew they belonged to God, because He was their Creator and Redeemer. They had no choice but to willingly obey Him, and that meant obeying His command to take the good news to every nation. On Friday, January 6th, three Alkas, one man and two women, approached them. They exchanged greetings. The missionaries showed them rubber bands, yo-yos, and balloons, and the man was taken up in the plane. Two days later, on Sunday, January 8th, they were due to radio in at 4.30. There was silence. When no message came, a plane was sent and then a rescue party. Four of their bodies were discovered. All lanced to death. The fifth was never found. It seems they were ambushed. All five were martyred for the sake of Christ. All were married and four were fathers. One wife was pregnant. Her three-year-old was heard to tell the new crying baby. Never you mind. When we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is daddy. Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul knew this. Paul knew that to cling to his resume, to cling to the comforts of this life, in the end was futile because he couldn't keep them anyway. Instead, as he considered his losses, he also had a gain. A gain that he could not lose and what was paul's gain listen again as i read verses 7 through 10 what was paul's gain but whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord What was Paul's gain? In a word, Paul's gain was Christ. Now, there are a variety of dimensions that Paul explores here about that gain that is His in Christ. But in total, what did Paul gain as he counted his losses? He gained Christ Himself. Three things I want us to observe as Paul rejoices in the gain that is his in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul's gain? Verse 8 I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For Paul, nothing compared to this. Sleepless night did not compare to knowing Christ Jesus. The absence of food from time to time for the sake of the Gospel did not compare to knowing Christ. The beatings, the rods, the stoning where He was left for dead did not compare to knowing Christ. That does not mean that it was easy. That, that does not mean that Paul did not weep. That he did not hurt. That he did not genuinely suffer. But what does he write in Second Corinthians chapter 4? But I know that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. And for Paul, what is that eternal weight of glory? what did He write in Philippians 1? For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And what did we say when we looked at chapter 1? Why would death be gain? Because death would be to behold the risen Christ. And being with Christ. And in this life, though we cannot physically be with Christ, for Paul, the great gain in the life of the believer is knowing Christ. Knowing Him by faith. Knowing Him in walking through suffering for the sake of the Gospel. And in that way, knowing Christ more as we follow the path that he has tread for us here paul draws on an old testament theme in jeremiah 9 jeremiah writes let him who let not rather let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows Me. And later in that same book, Jeremiah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing the words of God, a promise that there would come a day when there would be a new covenant that God would make with His people. A new way of relating to Him. And this is what he writes about that covenant. Behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah 31. Declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And he goes on, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know Me. And what did Jesus say? In a bit, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. And do you remember what He said to His disciples as He gave them that cup? Behold, this is what? The new covenant in My blood. He had come to establish, to open this new way by the shedding of His blood on the cross. God had promised that in this new covenant, all those who knew him by faith in Christ would, as we just said, know him. And here, Paul is celebrating that the great gain of the believer is to know Christ. And not just know about him, but to know him in walking in fellowship by his Spirit with him. Paul also writes that not only is it a gain that he knows Christ, it is also a gain that he would be found in Christ. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. This is the language that we've referred to before as being united with Christ by faith. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1. You can turn there if you like, or if you just want to follow along as I read, where Paul talks about all of the blessings that are the believer's Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Him. Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Paul says that these blessings, which are ours in Christ, by faith in Christ, far surpass anything that this world has to offer, such that the things of this world are counted as rubbish compared to these blessings which are ours in Christ by faith in Him." Paul's gain is Christ. Knowing Christ. Being found in Christ. That is, being in Christ now, but also in the age to come Already united to Christ by faith, but also in eternity, being identified as Christ's, as redeemed by the blood of Christ, but not just knowing Christ, not just being found in Christ. What does he he write there later in verse nine? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I said earlier that when Paul counted his losses, he wasn't in total repudiating his resume except at least, we should say here, at one point. He was repudiating any past efforts that he put forth and any claims that he had in the past to having a righteousness based on obedience to the law. Based on doing the right thing based on not doing the wrong thing. That kind of attitude that I can do the right thing and be right with God, that from his resume, Paul repudiates. Because he says here, there is no hope in that perspective. Instead, what is Paul's in Christ and what is every believer's in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is this not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or law obedience, but instead that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. What is the gift of the believer? It is the gift of righteousness from God Himself. A gift that God gives. And how is it that this gift of righteousness becomes ours? It is through faith. It's the righteousness that depends on faith. It's the righteousness that only becomes ours through faith. But not faith in faith. But rather, faith in a person. Faith in the person who is Paul's gain. Faith in Christ. Because when we put our faith in Christ, when we repudiate any claim to earning acceptance ourselves before God and instead put our faith in Christ, God, by His grace, declares us in right standing because there is One who has died in our place. Second Corinthians 5. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That's the first part of it. He who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was put on Him, Isaiah prophesied it hundreds of years before. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquities of us all. Our sin that deserves God's eternal punishment was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. The language here, the, the fancy five dollar term, is imputation. God imputes our sin to Jesus as Jesus on the cross bears the wrath that should have been ours. But there is another glorious imputation that happens. It is not only that God imputes our sin to Christ and as a substitute, Christ dies in our place but when God looks at us as we trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ, He looks on His children and sees them clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ's record, Christ's resume. Christ's list, unending list of credits, becomes credited to our account so that we gain right standing. And Paul says that this is the righteousness that can come only in one way. And it is by the gift of God through faith. In Christ. And so Paul says all of those things, all of those things are loss. My gain is Christ. Knowing Christ, being in Christ, being known by Him, and the credit of Christ's deeds, credited to my account because He has also taken upon Himself the long list of my rebellion against Him. Some of you have endured after surgery or sickness periods of grueling rehab. Some put themselves through Grueling exercises day after day, periodically, occasionally, depending on the individual, and whether it's through rehab, through exercise, what is the old saying? No pain, no gain, friends. The same is true for us. No pain, no gain. But here's the truth. The gain that we need of eternal redemption is not found in our pain. It is found in the pain of another. It is found in the pain of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our place. And Paul says to know Him, to know Christ Jesus as Lord, pales, causes everything else to pale in comparison. So that if you're here today, do you know Christ? Has His pain become your gain? Has His obedient death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead been credited to your account? How can you know? Because you're trusting in Him. And this morning, if you're here and you're not trusting in Christ, you're trusting in your own resume, You're trusting in something else for God to accept you? Friend, that gain in eternity will be eternal loss. But there is gain to be found. There is forgiveness to be found. There is hope to be found by counting all of that as loss and turning to Christ by faith those of you who are here and you're striving to walk with Christ, you're trusting Him, what does this look like in your life? What does it look like for you this morning to grow in the melody of your life resonating with the tune of the Apostle Paul here where he glories in the gain that is His, the gain that is ours in Christ. How do you need to grow in knowing Christ? Are there things in your life that are showing up as more valuable to you in the moment than growing and knowing Christ? Are there things that are distracting your attention from growing and knowing Christ in His Word? Are there things that are of more value in the moment that seem like they would be more gain and they are zapping time from going to the Lord in prayer? John Piper has somewhere said that when we get to eternity, our internet histories, our Facebook histories, our Twitter histories will testify that we cannot say, I didn't have time to pray. I didn't have time to grow in the Lord through His Word. Because friends, we have time to do all kinds of things. Are we using time with the Lord to grow in knowing the Lord? What about your priorities for your children? For your grandchildren? Athletic and academic success is a good thing. But it becomes an idolatrous thing. It becomes a sinful thing when such pursuits or any other pursuits like them gain superiority in your desire for your children to come to know the Lord and to grow in knowing the Lord. What's one area in your life this week where the Lord is calling you to grow in knowing the Lord. To grow in seeing and living out this truth that to know Christ is gain. All else is loss. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we... Pause once again and we bow before you. Father, thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, as the song says, there is no greater thing than knowing Christ. But Father, we confess that all too often the attractions of this world, the inclinations of our sinful hearts distract us. We become enticed with other things. and we fall prey, even in a moment, to the lie that there are things that are more satisfying than knowing Christ. That there are things more satisfying than walking in obedience to Him. Father, open the eyes of each of our hearts to see where it is that we have been drawn astray. Where it is, Father, that we need to come before You in repentance, confessing other commitments, confessing temptations, and drawing near to Christ. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning or who is listening, joining us on the live stream, who does not know truly the gain That is, knowing Christ by faith. Father, I pray this morning that they would call out to Christ. That they would turn from their sin and submit themselves to the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that if they need to talk to someone, that they would seek me out. That they would seek out another believer who is here. That they would reach out to the office this week. Somehow, Father, I pray that they would know how it is that they can be made right with You through faith in Christ. And as Mark prayed earlier, we pray again, Father, for the children who will be here at Vacation Bible School this week. Father, we pray for the teaching, that the teaching would be faithful. We pray that Christ would be held high. And we pray, Father, that these children would come to know or to grow in knowing a great gain that is Christ Himself. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.